You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 4th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Lashana Tova for a good year. Happy New Year to all of our SGU friends out there. Yeah, Happy New Year. What year is this? 5774. 5774. Which is proof that the Earth is less than 6,000 years old. I always thought it was funny where, where people just said, okay, so this is year one. Like right now, we're in year one. But well, do never they start that out way. with year one or year zero? It should be zero. Oh, we can't yeah. please. I don't want to have <laughs> yeah. that conversation again. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, they totally screwed up. But yeah, like our calendar, they didn't start, they didn't decide until hundreds of years later. I think it was like oh, yeah. getting close to the first cent, the first millennium before it was in wide use. Yes, yeah, so nobody right. even got the joy of living in year one because they didn't know zero. it at the time. Right. Yeah. That's correct. That's or year sad. negative one. Yeah, can you imagine? You're negative negative three. (laughs) (laughs) Something big's going to happen in three years. All right. (laughs) Today's show is brought to you by Hulu Plus. With Hulu Plus, you get total control to watch thousands of shows wherever and whenever you want. SGU listeners can get an extended two-week trial of Hulu Plus by going to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. And Squarespace. The all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional websites or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code SGU9. Hey, happy National Threatened Species Day, everybody. Threatened uh, species? Yeah. Ex- uh, exactly. Which, which species? Well, All of them? That, this is a date primarily commemorated in Australia, maybe even exclusively <laughs> commemorated in Australia. <laughs> Uh, but the date was chosen because, and this is kind of a sad one, I apologize. September 7th, 1936 is the date when the last known Tasmanian tiger died at oh. the Hobart Zoo oh. in Tasmania. Yeah, but yeah. Rebecca, those things were killing machines. They were sheep killers. They would roam the countryside slaughtering livestock left and right. Slaughter. They had no choice but to wipe them out. Right, right. They were supposedly very kind of cowardly. Like they, they, <laughs> as re- reports say that they they couldn't run very fast. They looked really awkward when they ran, and when they were oh my caught, they, they just didn't put up a fight. And some of them died from shock immediately. What did they have? Like really big dorky paws? Like uh, how pathetic? <laughs> no, they although they look kind of like uh they look kind of like a cross between a dog and a cat with stripes like a cross between a dog a cat and maybe like a badger yeah i, don't know. I think yeah. they're kind of cute but i don't it's it really is a shame like you can you can see footage of the last living uh tasmanian tiger if you look on youtube somebody uh somebody shot footage of it pacing around in its cage at the zoo and they just—it looks like such an amazing animal because I was—I was watching. I was trying to think of what, it, whether it more closely resembled a cat or a dog. And then I, I remembered, like, it's kind of useless to even think in those terms because any resemblance to cats and dogs and wolves and tigers is just convergent evolution because right. they split apart so long ago, and they were actually uh, marsupials. They had. 
They had little pouches. Oh, the marsupial family. Yeah. They had, yes. They had pouches and <laughs> the whole deal. Not, and so not, they're more closely related to the Tasmanian what'd devil. What do you think? The Partridge family, Jay? <laughs> Jay, I know you're making an obscure Jerky Boys reference there, but so that we don't get emails, marsupials are an infraclass of mammals. The, now, these guys, weren't these the ones that had the big open mouths, you know, like the extra big mouth? Yeah. Yeah, they had like, it, when their mouths were fully extended, to me it looks like a hippo. Again, I can only grok them by <laughs> comparing them to other animals. Two placentals, it's so biased of you. Yeah, yeah. Anti-marsupial. <laughs> Uh, there yeah. was actually an anti-marsupial bias at the time, which partly contributed to their extinction because, according to Australian Geographic, they uh, they suffered a lot from competition to introduced species, int- introduced placental species. And the thought was, well, placentals are inherently superior to marsupials, so it's only natural that the dingoes wipe out the thylacines, which they did on the mainland. The dingo ate my thylacine. Who right. knew that that racism extended to the animal kingdom? Yeah. Yeah. White people, come on. <laughs> Get your shit together. <laughs> Our placental species are superior to these native marsupials. Yeah. And oh. do we, do the, we have some DNA, I hope? We, we talked about that. Yeah, there's DNA, but cool. You know, not clear if they'll be able to, uh, resurrect it, you know, repopulate through, through cloning. It's theoretically possible. It's only been. Yeah, it's not even a hundred years, so it's you know it should oh. be theoretically possible DNA can survive that long. There are there are specimens. You know, I I don't know if they have sufficiently intact DNA. You know, amazingly enough, the Tasmanian tiger is thus far the only species to go extinct in Tasmania since white people showed up. Mm-hmm. So it was it's a huge number on Australia, but because Tasmania was a bit more bit wilder, I think, and also because the government did a slightly better job of protecting species on Tasmania, they've had a much better record. So, yeah, as of right now, the tiger's it. They added the thylacine to the endangered species list two months before the last one died. Oh, God. Yeah. late. Good timing. Someone wasn't paying attention, right? I mean, come on. Well, it was the sheep herders. I mean, they seriously, they, they really, they blamed them for, those guys, for their, for death of their sheep when actually it was dingoes were much more responsible and they, they, you know, lobbied against, they wanted to wipe out the thylacine. They thought it was a threat to their, to their sheep. And there wasn't even a, a concerted effort among zoos to breed them and keep them. So they were, they went presumably extinct in the wild. And then uh, just a few years later, maybe within the decade, the only ones left you know, in zoos ended up dying as well. And yeah. to me, the most heartbreaking part of the story is that the last one uh, in the Hobart Zoo died most likely of neglect. It oh was locked out of its enclosure and there was extreme weather at the time. Did they know it was the last one? Yeah. Yeah, uh, how could that? How, because that's humans are awful. That's criminal. <laughs> yeah, that's criminal. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It was a different time. Even if it, even if it wasn't neglect, just the idea of uh, could you imagine being with the last, the last Anything? member of a species, especially something as you know big and beautiful as that? Can you just imagine that the the emotions would be would be 
quite striking, I would think, thinking that I this know, is I'm it. Sad, Game I'm over. sad hearing about it. I couldn't right? imagine being involved with it. Well, one last thing. It is interesting that thylacine has crossed from real species to cryptozoological species yeah. in that there are people who now think that, you know, the, the thylacine roams the backwoods of Tasmania when there's really no credible evidence that one has been around since 1936. So kind of like the ivory-billed woodpecker in this country, a creature that went extinct, you know, in the early 20th century, and now there's dubious reports of, of sightings of it. Yeah, there were 320 sightings of the Tasmanian tiger between 1934 and 1980, and a study of those sightings found that just under half could be considered, quote, good, and none of them huh. were conclusive. Yeah. Well, we're going to go from uh, talking about the Tasmanian tiger to talking about NASA spiders. Bob, <laughs> tell me why, why is NASA interested in spiders? Space spiders. Space yeah. Spiders. Ooh. I, I spiders never think I, I never think the words NASA and arachnid would ever go together. But yeah, it's true. NASA is getting ready to deploy what they're calling 3D printing spiders that will eventually be able to build spacecraft or even huge structures in orbit. Awesome. Just take that in for a moment. It's amazing stuff. So NASA has partnered with a company uh, called Tethers Unlimited. And there's there's actually been <laughs> whispers and rumors for a long time about what they've been working on uh, and that it, that it might be something stupendous. And it sure seems like it, it may well be. Uh, the project's called uh, Spider Fab for spider fabrication. And this the idea this encompasses an array of technologies that involve these spider-like multi-armed robots that will be able to orient and move themselves in space to construct things like solar panels, antennas, trusses, even kilometer-scale antenna reflectors. I mean, imagine seeing something, a structure in, in space, you know, clearly with it, with the naked eye, not just a, not just a point of light, like, like the space station, but looking up there and seeing a structure. I mean, it reminded me of the, the Elysium space station. Remember that, those scenes in the, in the movie? Yeah. It was, uh, it's really striking. And that is actually something that, that, that we could see within our lifetimes. These spider robots are going to be using 3D printing. And we've talked about that a lot to create structures out of polymers and, and other materials. Ultimately, what they're doing here, the plan is to combine advances in automated assembly technologies with these robots. And then with additive manufacturing, which is the 3D printing to essentially transform our capabilities in, in Earth orbit and, and well beyond as well. So, and, and there's tons of benefits. I bet you guys can just throw out a few of them pretty, pretty easily. But construction costs are one huge benefit. You know, anytime you take people out of, out of this part of the loop, you dramatically cut costs. I mean, compare oh, the definitely. cost of sending a probe to Mars to, to sending even just one person to Mars. It may, obviously, there's, there's no life support. You don't need to feed them and make sure they, they're comfortable. So, the, so the, you know, the cost to create these amazing structures in space will, will be dramatically cut. They'll work, work full time. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, they don't yeah, take coffee breaks. <laughs> no breaks. I'd be willing to give them some coffee. The other cool aspect to this is that, you know, if you think about it, space deployments are expensive partly because um, the objects have to be built to survive the rigors of being launched. And it's easy to, to forget about that. But you got to, you know, it makes, it makes sense. These things have to be constructed to survive that. Otherwise, if you, if you just send to space a, a pile of broken parts, I mean, obviously not a, not a good move. This company, Tethers Unlimited, is, ca is going to, ca is calling these satellites, uh, they refer to them as a chrysalis or an, or even an embryo. 
So what, so what they're going to contain would be stuff like raw material needed in, in a very compact and durable state. So it would be very, very inexpensive, you know, to, to get it ready. I mean, just pretty much dump it in there and you're almost ready to go because it, it won't, it'd be very hard to, to damage these things. And also you would, they talk about including stuff called software DNA instructions because, you know, there's so many biological analogies here. So you, of course, you would need the instructions for actually, cre- cre- you know, building these structures using, using the, uh, the spider robots. Uh, you know, orbital construction, of course, allows things to be made that dwarf what's possible with today's systems and, and not just, you know, from a pure physical size. And this was a good quote from the CEO of Tethers Unlimited. His name is Rob Hoy. He said, this radically different approach to building space systems will enable us to create antennas and arrays that are tens to hundreds of times larger than are possible now, providing higher power, higher bandwidth, higher resolution and higher sensitivity for a wide range of space missions. So, so everything about this is just, is just so out of scale that, uh, I, I'm just so excited to see, you know, what, what this could possibly bring in the, in the next generation or so. So, so where are they right now? So right now, it seems like the, they're in the first, the first phase of this, uh, spider fab architecture. What they're doing is, I'm not sure where, you know, it's a little sketchy exactly where they are, but I think what they're doing is they're, they're constructing things like trusses using robots and 3D printing. They call it a trussellator device. And what a truss is essentially a large support structure. And then once you have the support structure down, then then you're all set to do to add to attach things to it, like multi hundred kilowatt solar arrays, large solar sails, and even football field sized antennas that they would attach to, to these trusses. So the future's looking pretty good for this. Um they're not they said they're not uh, ready for deployment yet, obviously, but uh, they don't right. think they're very far away, and a big help. Uh, NASA just uh, gave them a five hundred thousand uh, dollar infusion of of, uh, of funds. This still doesn't seem like very much, does it? Yeah, now that you think about it, they they should have thrown another. The they should have thrown another uh, zero Couple, or two in there. Zero. But, uh, well, I saw that this yeah. was the second. Uh, infusion of cash they've given them. I'm not sure how much the first one yeah, is, but it still doesn't that's, seem... Like that's true. Yeah. I mean, that's the most recent uh, you know, chunk of money that they've given them. I don't know what their, what their full budget is, but they make it seem, they made it seem like that they're really not that far away from, uh, from deploying at what least they the, say, the, five, the first phase of this. Something like, yeah, right. <laughs> right. I, I forget what, but, but, um, One more funding cycle. Yeah, exactly. Well, but, uh, this, yeah, and who knows, you know, they might run into some, to some problems. But if you think about it, I mean, automated assembly, you know, automated robotic assembly and, uh, and 3D printing, it's a no brainer. That stuff is going to, ha- it's going to happen in one form or the other. There's no question that that's where space fabrication is going. You know, that, what, what else, what, what's the other option? I mean, it's, it's so much better than ha- having people be out there in spacesuits with wrenches or to launch stuff into space that's fabricated down here because as you say, you can't really launch anything delicate into space. Right. Um, I wonder how they developed a printer that will withstand the uh, super frigid temperatures that these machines are going to have to be working, you know, in. Well, that's just it. I mean, who knows? The the, the low temperature and pressure could uh, could greatly accelerate, uh, you know, the, the hardening of the material and, and making it strong enough to support to support weight even sooner. I don't know, but they, they did, they did look into that very seriously, of course, and it clearly it wasn't that much of a problem. I mean, you know, they're using polymers and other materials, which is the most detail I could find about exactly what kind of 3D printing this is. But material science is so advanced now that, uh, it was never mentioned as any, as an issue. They pretty much solved that problem relatively early on in this process and, uh, they're pretty psyched about it. This is the kind of thing you could strap on the top of a rocket, right? You wouldn't need a 
space shuttle type of no that's just it you, all you would orbit. all you would need or you, you would need just a series of, of just low cost launch systems you really wouldn't need anything anything special all right start building that space Sweet. hotel come on yeah <laughs> all right evan let me ask you a question okay did your mother eat chicken wings when she was pregnant with you <laughs> whoa <laughs> well hang on let me check real quick nope <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Why? You Who a cares? grower or a shower? Uh, oh, it's a... <laughs> Hang on! <laughs> All right. What the Christ now. are you talking about? Oh God! <laughs> I think we should We're just end about... the segment right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I must elaborate because Jay asked. Jay, we're talking about PETA, right? People for the ethical treatment of animals. Oh, I thought you meant PETA, the bread. Yeah, me too. At no. No. It's good with hummus. <laughs> good thing I elaborated. Yeah. It's awesome with hummus. Yes. Now, PETA is an American animal rights organization. They're based out of Norfolk, Virginia, and they are the largest animal rights organization in the world with more than 3 million members and supporters. And directly from their website, I quote, our driving mission to stop animal abuse worldwide. There you go. Now, in a letter from, P- from PETA to a gentleman named Drew Serza, who's the founder of the National Buffalo Festival, and this letter was dated August 15th, 2013. It reads as follows. You may remember hearing from us a few years back when we requested that you cancel the wing-eating competitions. And what they mean by wing-eating, folks, is chicken wings, uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with the American term wings or short-term wings, chicken wings. Wing-eating competitions at the National Buffalo Wing Festival because of the cruelty inherent in poultry production. I'm reaching out to you again to ask you at least take steps to ensure the safety of pregnant women by barring them from taking part in your contests. As I will explain, consuming poultry while pregnant may lead to birth defects in utero, including smaller-than-average penises for newborn boys. Oh, now I can <laughs> so so what was your answer what was (laughs) let's let's rewind everything so jay can get all the jokes yeah i mean i missed all that but but you got it now i got it okay obviously makes sense all right wasn't that funny go on she uh the letter continued I think we can agree that embarrassment and insecurity are no small matters, and the word small appears in italics, which denotes emphasis. Ha ha. Now, further in the body of the letter contains this sentence. In addition, eating cholesterol-laden chicken flesh during pregnancy may also increase unborn babies' risks of being born with blocked arteries, which can lead to strokes and heart attacks later in life. Oh, my God. I mean, how misinformed can this guy be? And uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll sum it up. I'll jump. There's more in the body, but I'll jump to the conclusion of the letter. Now that you are well endowed with this information, <laughs> and yes, that, that appeared in italics as well, I hope you will have the backs of future Buffalo residents and visitors by not allowing their pregnant mothers to participate in the wing eating contest. And I hope to hear from you soon. Sincerely, Lindsay Ratt, uh, R-A-J-T, who's the Associate Director of Campaigns for PETA. Okay. So the raging questions here are one, oh, God. My God. can eating chicken while pregnant really affect your son's penis size? No. <laughs> and two, does eating chicken while pregnant increase the risk of blocked arteries of those yet to be born? No. All right. So now. there we go. Thank you. Okay. 
Well, um, right, here's my I, favorite I, comment from the article. Let me just say this. Yeah, if, go for it. If PETA is so much against meat, why would they want larger penises? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> was that a comment in the in that article, yes. Steve? Okay, yes. nice. A comment, yeah. <laughs> of course it was. All right. Well, Women's Health Magazine being devoted to women, women and, and their health, mothers yep. and mothers-to-be and so forth, they decided to take up the call to investigate these claims. And here's what they report. The research PETA mentioned from the study of future families, which is where they pulled it from, did not look at chicken consumption at all. It looked at how prenatal phthalate exposure affects boys reproductively in a variety of ways, one of which was penis size. So what are the what are phthalates? You, know, you guys know what those are, right? This stuff where you put plastic in the microwave. Yes. Right. Yep. Plastic additives. And they're used in a variety of products, including cooking containers, uh, food packaging, plastic cups, flooring, beach balls, plastic wrap, intravenous tubing. You get the gist. It's pretty much ubiquitous in the world of plastics. Now, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, there is a growing collection of evidence suggesting dietary exposure to thiolates may, I stress may, cause significant metabolic and hormonal abnormalities, especially during early development. Um, among the primary sources of phthalate exposure in people come from, of course, food packaging, where phthalate naturally leaks from the packaging and it winds up in the food that it is protecting. And yes, while chicken is a source of phthalates, it is by no means a primary source. It would seem that people are being exposed to phthalates from a very wide variety of sources. Yeah, in fact, Evan... Environmental Health Perspectives published a study in March of this year comparing phthalate levels in different foods. And if you look at vegetable oil, grains, fruits and vegetables, they have as much or more of the different types of phthalates uh, in them than does poultry. Poultry's way down on the list. So PETA should be telling people not to eat grains, fruits and vegetables and vegetables. And this is a set of facts which PETA fails to mention or put in any kind of proper context in their letter to Mr. Serzin. Shock. So I uh, tried to do, look as deeply as I could at the actual research to see what, mm -hmm. what that showed. And uh, it's, you know, a lot of uh, rat studies, a lot of rodent studies. Mm -hmm. What they, they looked at numerous uh, morphological features of the genital region of male rodents based upon who, who were, whose mothers were fed phthalates. So, you know, they, they have very high levels. It's hard to know if that translates to anything in humans. But I didn't find a single study that that reported finding decreased penis size. I found a few that measured it, but none that reported it. What they did find was the decreased AGI, or the anogenital index, which is the distance between the anus and the genitals. That distance is shorter in correlation with higher phthalate levels. And the other effect was in incompletely descended testicles. But mm -hmm. nothing about penis size that I could find. Yep. Uh, in humans, there there's a couple of small studies looking, you know, ep epidemiological, not, of course, not experimental, just measuring phthalate in the urine of mothers and measuring the genitals of their sons. And again, it's a little bit of an association with the decreased AGI, but nothing about penis size that I could find. So the evidence is characterized in reviews as preliminary, that there is a consistent effect here in the research that exists so far, but probably only a risk with the highest levels of exposure and 
it's it still hasn't been definitively demonstrated. You know, precautionary pin- principle would reasonably argue for limiting um, exposure to phthalates in pregnant women and and in infants. And in, you know, in, in fact, under the Bush administration, phthalates in plastic baby toys and products was banned. So that step has already been taken. How much would you have to ingest, Steve, to, for there to be any kind of effect? Uh, it's you know, it's hard to say to say how much would you have to ingest. I mean, the the human studies look at look at markers of how much is in the body, not how much was consumed. So, and it's only the highest you know percentiles that have any association. Uh, th- yeah. Bottom line is to me, there's po- there's a possible effect here. It's plausible that there's a possible hormonal effect. Uh, but the data is preliminary, so we, we can't really make statements like what's the safe level and what's what's the risk at this point. The other scientific claim they made, Steve, in this letter uh, to the fellow who runs the festival, it regarded the clogged arteries in the unborn. Yeah, I mean, you know that that's that's ridiculous. But um, <laughs> you, you know, you have to have a Western diet is associated with a higher risk of, say, cholesterol streaks in the arteries of twenty-year-olds, you know, compared to a more Mediterranean diet, for example, or a more Eastern diet. So, yeah, certainly a childhood spent consuming large amounts of fat and cholesterol may accelerate the development of atherosclerosis. You know, trying to tie that to eat mothers eating chicken wings is obviously ridiculous. And Women's Health went to the authors of the studies, which PETA cited, uh, for reference to their letter, and the authors of the studies both agree that, that PETA is not doing a good job. Not They're not being responsible. And they're saying this is very, very tenuous. There's a, you know, it's a stretch. You can't, yeah. you can't uh, bridge, you can't use this to bridge those, uh, you know, those correlations. It's, it's, uh, it's not, not prudent. And uh, they don't agree with yeah, it. Yeah, it's bad science. They're using bad science as a propaganda tool to support their ideology. Again, which is saying nothing about, you know, uh, their ideology itself, you know, the, the, the being, against animal testing or whatever. We're, right. we're not commenting not on we're that. Talking we're talking about, right? about their abuse of science in promoting uh, promoting their ideology. As exactly. the Taking them to task. As the token pseudo-vegetarian, pescatarian <laughs> on the panel, I would like to go ahead and make a moral statement and say that PETA is mm-hmm. absolutely despicable. Like, I, I loathe them because of things like this, because... When there, there are so many skeptics and science lovers out there who are also concerned about animal welfare and seeing things like this, using science, you know, twisting science to make some sort of crappy point. And at the same time, not only are they misusing science, but they're, they're doing it in a way that adds to the overwhelming atmosphere of fear for pregnant women that criminalizes everything a pregnant woman puts into her body. God forbid yeah. if there should be anything that happens to that fetus, then you might as well throw that woman in jail. Uh, so they're contributing to that. And now they're also contributing, like I'm used to them uh, selling women down the street, up the stream. Is that where you sell people? Down the river. Down the river. Down the river. I'm used to them selling women down the river, using their bodies, using naked women to sell their propaganda. But now they're doing it to men as well and trying to pretend as if having a small penis is something that men need to be ashamed of, that it's something that Mm -hmm. mothers should be ashamed of if their sons have small penises. There's nothing wrong with having a small penis. So long as it doesn't have any horrible health 
effects. I mean, it's not a big deal, so to yeah. speak. Uh, so <laughs> I just had to get that off my chest as the, the resident, you know, hippie animal lover. Screw <laughs> PETA and their, their jerky, jerky waste. Yeah. By doing this, they do give <laughs> animal rights activists in general, you know, animal rights activism a bad name. Yeah. Yeah. You know, by being a big representative organization, like I said, like the biggest organization that consistently uses pseudoscience to promote its agenda, they actually, in, in a way, you could argue they hurt their agenda. Yeah. I would oh, argue definitely. that. Exactly. <laughs> and there are tons of great animal rights organizations out there. Do a little research on them. Find some local groups in your area. They are a bunch of dedicated, really hardworking people who don't do this kind of crap. And, you know, you can express your support for them in other ways. Just don't send it Peter's way. Exactly. Have your pets spayed or neutered. Real quick, uh, yeah, a <laughs> couple of things. It was really weird you know, when I was doing a little research on this article to actually type into Google for the second time uh, two words, chicken and penis. It was really odd. But my main point is, <laughs> was that, um, uh, did you know that th this chemical, there's not a lot of it in chicken? There's no. Not, there's not even a no. lot. Wait, and actually, that, did we? Yeah. Did we? Yeah. Well, I did. Well, I, I, I brushed. Yeah, I, brushed. I, I don't remember you saying that, but also spices. Spices are actually w much higher on the top of the list. Much, much worse yes. than than chicken. Which is that? Which I'm I'm glad that I can't get pregnant because I would. Oh boy! Uh, if, I hey, can't, Bob, if I didn't need spices, that'd be a terrible thing. What? What? Watch did, those Scovilles. Did you know there wasn't a lot of that chemical in chicken? <laughs> oh boy! I heard that somewhere. Pot kettle. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of a chicken little joke, but not. I'm not. I'm drawing a blank. Oh. <laughs> Got it's nothing. probably the best. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we move on? Uh, what do you guys know about traditional Chinese medicine? Only the uh, bad I know stuff. The acronym. <laughs> I take it and then I want to take it an hour later. The acronym yeah, is TCM. It's a hard question to answer, Steve. I mean, I know I know quite a bit about it. There, you know, there's a lot of ins and outs about you know the different things that they use, where they get it from, the, the superstition yeah. behind the practitioners and the people that take it. What, she likes worse meridians all that. No. Yeah, it's interesting because, <laughs> you know, we talk about it a lot. It's, it's, it's gaining in popularity in the West, ironically. Um, but, you know, most people I talk to about it, you know, outside of my colleagues, uh, who study this sort of thing have no idea what it's really based on. But the reason why I bring this up is because there was a recent article discussing the fact that there's a clash between science-based physicians in China and traditional Chinese practitioners. And uh, specifically over treatments for the flu. There are a lot of concerns in China about bird flu, about different strains of flu, the, uh, you know, respiratory viruses. And the uh, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners are offering a number of different remedies. And this is starting to piss off the uh, science-based doctors who, who recognize that their alleged remedies are worthless. And it's you know, potentially harmful to tell people to rely upon worthless remedies. Um, so, for example, Professor David Hugh Xu Chong, who teaches respiratory medicine at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, said there was no scientific evidence to show that Ban Lan Gen, which is a herb commonly used to treat uh, influenza, that it is effective in, at preventing influenza. He said the traditional Chinese medicine industry is trying to cash in. So, in addition to herbal remedies, they have been recommending... Uh, for example, going out and getting fresh air and sunshine, uh, massaging the side of one's nose, exposing part of one's leg and stomach to incense. Letting the, the smoke from incense 
wash over your skin. Right. Okay. So yeah, in addition to uh, the banlan gen, which is a type of root used in, in TCM. So these treatments, there's you know no evidence that the, or plausibility that there's any effectiveness uh, to any of them. The history of the whole traditional Chinese medicine thing is interesting as well. You know, obviously, a lot of these notions go back. You know, it's always said like, oh, it's 3,000 years old, 5,000 years old. You know, the, these, this philosophy did evolve significantly over time. And there is a lot of mixing with health philosophies from other cultures. There's been a, there's been a lot of cross-fertilization. In fact, a lot of the core ideas are the same. They just the, the particular details vary from culture to culture, but a lot of the basic ideas are the same. So, you know, there's no reason to think that traditional Chinese medicine has any more validity than the bloodletting and purging of, you know, European, of Western traditional Galenic medicine, you know, which, which dates back to the, around the same time. Uh, the difference is that in the West, scientific medicine replaced traditional medicine, luckily, that's why we don't do bloodletting and purging anymore. Um, and in the East, the history was, was a little bit different. What, what happened in China was after Mao Zedong's revolution, they had a, you know, a huge population and they, they essentially realized that they had absolutely no way to provide medical services to their entire population. So Mao created what, what's called the Barefoot Doctor Program. You guys ever hear of that? It was actually a good idea. What they did was they took locals, farmers, whoever, and they trained them. They gave them like a six to nine month crash course on basic medicine. You know, they trained them as medics and then they sent them back to their village, their farm. They, they still worked in whatever their job was. But in addition, they, they were, they serviced their local community as a medic. So that was a way of, of getting out, you know, some medically trained people to the vast countryside. The cities had, Western-trained, modern hospitals and, and trained physicians, uh, but but the you know, vast majority of the population was in in the countryside and they, and they had no health care. So this was this was their stopgap measure, and it was you know effective as far as it went. But what's interesting is that they didn't they couldn't afford to give them instruments or actual medicine, so they they created the uh, Barefoot Doctor Handbook, which was essentially how to practice medicine without any actual medicine. So they had a chapter in there on, well, here's the local roots and herbs that you can use, you know, in, in place of, of manufactured medicine or pharmaceuticals. The fact that that was included in the handbook lent a lot of credibility to the traditional Chinese medicine herbalism. Uh, but it was essentially, it was in the, in the handbook, it was the last ditch effort. You know, it was sort of the, this is in desperation. If nothing else is available, you can rely upon, you know, your, the local you know, herbs and roots, but it was never really presented as this is like the uh, primary medical care. This is, this is the first thing you should go to. But in the East, you know, when the, it was looked on as, oh, this is what they're doing in China. This is, you know, this is China, you know, cutting edge Chinese medicine. Meanwhile, in China, they were importing Western science based medicine and they were resorting to this only as a last ditch effort when they couldn't afford real medicine. There's also been a, a, a sort of cultural pride aspect to traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, the fact that it was, you know, traditionally Chinese gave it a, a great deal of support. So now there's there's that conflict is in China. You know, there's the conflict between scientifically trained doctors who know how to think about, you know, what works and what doesn't work about actual biological mechanisms and practitioners still steeped in thousands of years, years old, you know, pre-scientific superstitions 
um, which has been, you know, rekindled and given the patina of respect. And, and this now is being exported and, and co-opted by unscientific medical practitioners in, in the West. Um, here is uh, a quote from Dr. Uh, Dong Zhilang, which is the president of the Zhan Zhitong Hospital in Shangzi. I probably totally butchered that, but I did the best I could. Uh, he wrote, um, the biggest headache regarding traditional Chinese medicine is that its effectiveness often cannot be explained. The curing process can be so sophisticated, it may not be simply explained scientifically, physically, or chemically. So he's essentially saying, first of all, he's assuming that it works. You know, the problem is that its effectiveness can't be explained, not that we don't know how to know, find out if it is effective or not. He's assuming that it's effective and that it's just so darn sophisticated you can't explain it in scientific terms of chemistry, you know, biology and physics. It's just too sophisticated for that. And he gets just superstitious nonsense. Let me explain a little bit of what the superstitious nonsense is. This is what I was referring to at the beginning about what's the, the, the behind the, uh, the philosophy. Are you guys aware of the five elements of traditional Chinese medicine? Air, water, Actually, the first fire. one you mentioned, it's not air. That's the one that's missing. It's fire, earth, water, and then metal and wood. And they believe that all phenomena in the universe can be broken down into the interactions of these five elemental qualities. Wood, fire, earth, wood, metal, huh? and water. Yeah. Right, yeah, not to be uh, confused with the previous news item. What about so, plasma? Wood in the universe, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, right, that, that, that's a mythology. That's not, does not reflect <laughs> reality, you know. exactly what that is. <laughs> yeah, you have the elemental quality of wood. You're trying to understand all of nature through that prism. You know, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, there's that, and then the other layer is the yin and the yang, which is like everything, there's a duality to everything in the universe, and, you know, the yin is female and moist, and the yang is male and dry. <laughs> you know, there, it's, it's actually, it's funny, because if you read the yin and the yang, um, the, the like yin is female and yang is male, and then if you think about that, and you read all the other features, you can see how it kind of goes along with that. So the female is inside, cold, yeah, downward, concave. and damp, while the, the yang is male outside, because we've got outside plumbing, right? Hot, upward, and dry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Would you agree it, with that? It everybody? all makes sense now. Uh, everything but the cold part <laughs> seems like somebody should go to the doctor. The real one. <laughs> oh, boy. So pretty much everything everything circles back to be about sex. Oh yeah, that's, that's always at the core of all human philosophy: is sex, right? All right. Um, wow, crazy, crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff. <laughs> okay, let's move on. It's time again to take a quick break from the show to talk about our sponsor this week, Hulu Plus. I was pleasantly surprised at Hulu Plus's selection of documentaries that they offer, including I'm in the middle of watching once again Ken Burns's The Civil War series, which is I oh, think is the so preeminent awesome. documentary of my generation. Love it. It it changed the standard for documentaries. Definitely. It absolutely did. 
Yeah, there's also really nostalgic stuff on there. Like, you, do you guys remember the greatest American hero? Oh god! <laughs> oh that yeah! Show. Oh my god! That, that was a that was a fun fun did series. Did you watch it, Steve? Recently, like, if, like, does it hold up? Or because I would imagine oh, it didn't gosh, hold no. up well. No, it doesn't. Of course not. But that's why it's great. It's so campy. I, have you ever watched Project Runway, where these people are like, it's like a mm-hmm. reality TV no. show where they try mm-hmm. to, they're competing, like, who's a, the best clothing designer? I just like the show. I think it's done really well. There's a lot of good char- like reoccurring characters on there, and it's it's a really good reality TV show. So you can get Hulu Plus and get access to all these shows and more for seven ninety nine per month. And if you check it out through HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU or go to our website and click on the Hulu Plus link, you will get a two-week free trial. Yeah, the, the real cool thing is that you can watch Hulu Plus on, on pretty much anything, your TV, your, your gaming consoles, your, your mobile devices, anywhere you are or you go, bam, you've got it right there in front of you. Just click the link on our website or go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Rebecca, before we finish up with the news items, uh, tell us how DragonCon was. It was so much fun. I was so sad you guys couldn't be there because it is a blast. And tons of people came up to me uh, to tell them that they were huge fans of SGU and that they missed all of you there. That SGU Live at DragonCon was the highlight of their year. And you guys not being there basically destroyed their lives. Oh, I see where you're going with this. (laughs) Sorry, Most of everybody. that was true. Most Sorry. of what I just said was true. I uh, heard from really a couple didn't. of people that Dragon Con was was exceptionally fun this year. We, of course, so we're not there, right? Yeah, <laughs> we did have a blast. Um, what are you talking about? Steve? I only you did have fun. <laughs> I only did a couple of panels, but they were all awesome. Um, I did one with uh, people like Noisy Astronomer, Nicole Gugliucci, mm-hmm. and uh, Joseph Scrimshaw about spreading skepticism and science using various methods like comedy or internet or art. So, oh, and Drew Curtis was there as well on that panel from, he's the guy who started FARC.com, which is a very skeptical website. And I did the Quizotron which is great. Uh, we had like a record 12 people on stage or something, including like Bill Corbett and uh, Bill Molly Lewis, Phil Plate, of course. We couldn't keep him off if we tried. <laughs> we did. Tried very hard. Security tried. Scott Sigler, of course. Cool. Uh, yeah, cool. it it was a blast. I also did a panel on the women of Westeros, which was a lot of fun. Uh, basically talking gender and game of thrones just it was packed and awesome that was my first time on the uh fantasy literature track and i highly recommend it to anybody who goes next year it was a really well-run track and an awesome audience well we will definitely try to make it next year we just our schedules were too filled up this year we actually haven't disclosed to the public why we were too busy to go this year um, and I think we're going to save that for a future episode. We'll let you speculate because we're, we're, when we're, there's something else good that we're going to announce. And when we do that, we'll give you the whole backstory on why we couldn't make Dragon Con this year. That's almost really cruel. Yeah. <sighs> too bad. Yeah, so we'll have to wait six to eight months. So oh, well. You'll just have to keep listening to the show until mm. we tell Steve you. Steve is pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't Don't chicken with, wings. I am pregnant with creativity, I guess you could say. No, you couldn't say that because that'd be uh, weird. All right, well, Evan, it's who's that oh. noisy time? Wow. Okay. 
always. And now. And now, without further ado <laughs> and delay and hesitation, it's I give time. you. I pl- <laughs> oh, speaking of, I also met Phil Lamar. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh. He was he, awesome. He's one he of the voices nice for the guy. Simpsons character. Uh, Simpsons. Uh, Futurama. Futurama and like a million other shows. And he was so much fun. We hung out in a hotel room and drank and laughed and it was fun. Oh, jealous. Yeah. He should be. Did you tell him Evan awesome. said hi? I did, weirdly <laughs> enough. And he was like, who's Evan? I was like, <laughs> no, shut no, your no. mouth. Yeah. <laughs> shut your Phil Lamar mouth, man. Last week's Who's That Noisy? Let's play it right now. It sounds like a guy yelling in the mall. It's like William Chatner's first William Chatner's first attempt at yelling con. Very well. It is kind of kind of a tortured version of it. So well, uh, what is it? The most guesses that came in, I don't know if any of you read the emails or the postings, but they think that it was a goat bleating that noise. Mm. However, correct? not correct in this case. We've actually played the bleating goat uh years ago as a prior who's that noisy. This you was a dummies. different animal <laughs> making this all too human like noise and it is of course the <gasps> seal. Yes, mm-hmm. that's a seal. No seal. way. Oh, cool. Uh, exactly which species, specific type of seal, I don't know. There are plenty of YouTube videos out there of screaming seals. Just put in screaming seals and you'll get like 500 videos of them. You know, they're all in captivity, these um, these ones that they got these recordings off of. So I don't know if it has to do with feeding, a feeding cycle, if they're trying to communicate with each other. There's... Not much to be found about exactly why these seals scream this way. So, Evan, it was the seal mimicking a human, do they think, or what's the deal? No, not mimicking, not mimicking a human. There's lots of, like I said, lots of video footage of it in which seals in different environments at different times and different surroundings are making that kind of noise. Just one of the noises <clears throat> they make. Maybe they think we're mimicking them when we scream. Maybe. <laughs> it must be really weird to hear an animal make a human-sounding noise like that. Well, yeah, I mean, but have you ever lived in the woods? There are tons of animals that make really creepy human-sounding things. Like rabbits, when they scream, sound like babies, human babies. Rabbits, Or foxes. Birds, uh, right, frogs. Fisher cats, uh, owls. The person, uh, let's see, they didn't send me their name, but I'll just read the first part of their email address. Uh, nine fifty five ifth, <laughs> or nine mm-hmm. five fifth, I guess you could say, is this week's winner. So, congratulations on guessing correctly and having a very interesting <laughs> email address there. <laughs> Here we go. Another. Who's that noisy, fresh off the presses? Uh, identify this voice. The real issue here, as far as man is concerned, is that when you upset such an important issue as the creation of the universe, on face, you're destroying your confidence and the validity of your own mind. That's Dr. Ruth Westheimer, wasn't it? (laughs) That's what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Not a bad uh, first guess there, Bob. We'll uh, 
We'll see what uh, the listeners can come up with. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email address for Who's That Noisy Submissions. If you would like to place a guess on the message boards, that is SGUforums.com. Please give us your guess, and good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. Got a couple of emails we can get to this week. The first one is from Andrew Martinez from Rochester, New York. And this is about chicken pox, which has nothing to do with the previous item about chicken wings. And Andrew writes, have you guys ever talked about intentionally infecting kids with chicken pox? As a small child, I remember my mother doing this with my childhood friend. She took my brother and I over to, actually it's me, over to play with him and tried to get us infected. My brother broke out while I only had three actual pockmarks. I never challenged this idea and figured that all parents did this. I mentioned this at work, and my coworker was flabbergasted, citing that that was a stupid practice. He went on to say that there is a vaccine for chickenpox and that purposely infecting your child just opens them up to get shingles later. I personally haven't had a memory this old brought up and challenged. I would like to believe that I am analytical and not subject to wives' tales, but I personally never challenged the memory and practice. Maybe you guys can talk about this, as I'm sure others have had similar experiences. Right. I independently came up with this idea when I was a child. But it was explained to me that Mm -hmm. it's better to get chicken pox when you're younger because when you're older, it can be very deadly. I was like, then why don't they just give it to everybody when they're a kid? And I was the smartest child on earth. At the time. At the time. At the the time. The practice. Isn't that true, though? I mean, I've heard of this. I've seen this in the movies. I, I think it's part of the culture that parents would try to get their kids sick with some of these childhood diseases to get them out of the way. Yeah, but it's not a good idea. I mean, especially now in the, with the, in the age of vaccines, it's, it's, it's a bad idea. But my, so my question is, you know, I understand why it's a bad idea now because basically a hundred kids every year would die from chickenpox. So, uh, to do that now when you could just have a vaccine it makes no sense at all. But so my question is, years ago before the vaccine, did it, would it still make sense to do this? No, it, it really didn't because you're just spreading an infectious disease and making the epidemic worse. You know, you, you're, better off isolating people with chickenpox to try to limit its spread. Um, and still overall morbidity and mortality would be lower if you try to limit the spread of the disease, uh, even if that means there are some people who would have had it as a child who now are vulnerable to getting it as an adult. And it's not just that, you know, 100 to 150 people died each year from chickenpox prior to the vaccine. Over 10,000 were hospitalized with serious complications. Uh, so it's it's not um, not a, a completely benign disease. You know, you can get super infection, skin infection, sepsis, uh, pneumonia. It can be serious. And of course, once you have it, then you are at risk for getting shingles later on in life. Shingles is the same virus, the varicella zoster, but it can get uh, reactivated later in life. It, the, once you have chickenpox, the virus is dormant in your Drosuru ganglia, so they're just always in your body, just asleep, and they can be reactivated just spontaneously or under stress or immunocompromised or whatever. And then um, they they cause a new infection, which which can create an extremely uh, painful rash, which can become chronic. You get some people get post herpetic neuralgia, which is uh, chronic neuropathic pain, nerve pain in the distribution of the herp- the herpes zoster infection, the shingles. Uh, very hard to treat, very painful, really diminishes quality of life. Nothing to well, be taken crap. lightly. I, I had shingles. I had it. Yeah. Like 10, 12, 12 to 15 years ago. And my memory's a little hazy about it. But 
what I do remember is that it wasn't that big of a deal for me. I mean, yeah, the, you, pa- the pain was unusual. It's like, whoa, what the hell was that? You know, it's like a kind of an unusual pain. But it, for me, it wasn't especially intense and it didn't last that long. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess it's not as bad as I heard. But it, I guess it can be bad. But I think I just lucked out. Oh, yeah, it's just the spectrum. You just had a mild case, you know, so but, but people have more severe cases. What's it feel like, Bob? It, well, like I said, it's, it's a pain. It was a pain in my back and like in the middle of my back and in various areas, small areas of my back. And it was just a like an unusually uh, – it's hard. It's kind of ineffable to, to explain. Well, the kind of words it, it, that people usually use to describe that kind of pain is burning, shooting, electrical hmm. uh, pain. Technical eh. term we use is lancinating. That's funny. I wouldn't use any of those, but okay. Yeah. Maybe you didn't actually have it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, yeah, it, no, it was, I went to the doctor, he's like, yep, you got shingles. Yeah, not every get, not everybody gets the neuropathic pain, but when you do, it's, it's, it's a, such a it's disgraceful bad. name for it. shingles. Shingles. <laughs> Makes it sound <laughs> like, yeah. like a poop related disease. That's what <laughs> it sounds like. Because you're thinking Sweet. of shit, shit on a shingle, that's why. Yeah. yeah. Shingles. Yes. There you go. Shingles is like some old world wacky disease that people like, used to get. Like consumption. Know? Yeah, mm. consumption. Or, consumption. Or rickets. Right. rickets. Or scurvy. And, Things that uh, occasionally people do still get, and it's horrible, but... Yeah, like yeah. if you had a bad case of the heebie-jeebies, you could get, then you could get rickets, which would make you have scones. <laughs> scones. scones. Piles and... Uh, Almond scones. Mm. <laughs> mm. Just say well, scones. I'll just give you some laudanum for the, for the pain. Oh, yeah. Um, or radium. All right, mm. so but Bob, you bring up the point that now there's a chicken pox vaccine available. Yeah, and so you, you don't have to get chicken pox or be susceptible to shingles later in life. You just can get vaccinated. And the chicken pox vaccine is quite effective and it lasts a long time. The, so it gives, it gives good immunity. Generally speaking, vaccines don't give as long lasting immunity as the infection itself, but that doesn't mean it's better to be infected. Huh. Um, you know, they, they, we actually measure the duration of the effect of various vaccines and schedule booster shots as at intervals that are necessary. Um, if, if, you know, to, to get the titers back up. So, but you know, uh, the, the varicella vaccine is very effective and provides good protection that lasts for years. So there's simply no reason to deliberately infect people with chickenpox anymore. It's really only a practice among the anti-vaccinationists, to be honest with you, people who, Fear monger about vaccines or have, you know, pseudoscientific, uh, ideas about the dangers of vaccines. Yeah. And it's not just chickenpox in that case. You know, I think we've talked before about people having measles parties oh, yeah. and stuff. It's Small really pox. horrific. Yeah. It's, not it's even, even worse. Yeah. Yeah. There was that, yeah, that book that Australian person published. Um, yeah. Mindy's like Marvelous Mindy's, Measles or something. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. It's about Ew. that. Awful. Hey, I want to quickly with Bob. Hey, Bob, hey. Rebecca wants a quickie with you. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rebecca. You're in for a treat. Trust me. This oh, Always boy. up for a pity quickie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. Wait, that's not allowed during my quickie. This is your quickie with Bob. Uh, your periodic table will most likely soon be out of date, eventually. Scientists from all over the world, led by physicists from Lund University in Sweden, have confirmed the existence of a previously of a previously unknown chemical element. Now, this is the second time this element has been created, which is why uh, it's really being taken seriously now. It was first accomplished in 2003 by a team of German scientists working with California's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. It's temporarily been named Unun Pentium, and its atomic number, or the number of protons in the nucleus, is 115. Now, the scientists created this uh, new element by colliding 
americium-243, and calcium-48. And unfortunately, if history is any guide, it could be years and years before it has an official name. Um, element 114, you may remember, was acknowledged uh, for 14 years as a real element before finally earning the name fluorovium. So it can take a while. So the next step is for, for the officials from the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry to review the experiment to see if element 115 deserves an official space on the periodic table of elements. This has been your Quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you, too. It was. They should call it unobtainium. <laughs> no. Indescribe, I like the chemists are unionized. <laughs> I, don't, I just well, like they're the, not, they're unionized? I like the idea of it. Well, they International just Interna- Union Interna- of Pure Interna- and Applied, Union. Yeah. Pure they, and applied get, Chemistry. Do they get dental with that? That's great. <laughs> uh, let's do another email. This email comes from Robert from Texas. Yeah. A little vague. But Robert <laughs> from Texas says... <laughs> I'm a new fan of the show and a budding skeptic, so if this topic has already been covered, maybe you can point me to the right direction for some good info. My brother's wife's sister's cousin. No, I didn't. I just (laughs) my brother's wife. I know this guy who knows this guy who knows this guy. guy. Has recently been selling essential oils, and she is absolutely in love with them. Any and all problems you may have can be helped with the use of the proper oil. It sounded a little shady to me, so I tried doing some research, and I found plenty of people talking about how it's a scam, but I also seem to find some studies to back up some small claims of oil users. Nothing earth-shattering, but maybe some use in helping with headaches, stomach aches, and relaxation. So I'm asking you guys to help me understand this once and for all. Did I find bogus info? Is there perhaps some small benefit to this? Or is it straight pseudoscience and quackery all the way through? Jay, you looked into this. I did. So I asked the simple question, what is an essential oil? And the proper definition is pretty simple. It's an oil, mostly supposed to be an extracted form of uh, oil from a plant that has a smell that typically is from the plant, right? So the idea that these oils are called essential means they smell like and contain the essence of the plant they're from. Now, when you have a a container of, of essential oil, you're supposed to dilute it, and you could dilute it with other oil if you want to. So you're not getting like this incredibly intense, um, high potency version of the oil. But I'll get into that a, a little later. So there's different mes- methods that you could use to extract oil from plants. Like the traditional one, and the most common is the distillation or another process using steam distillation. Uh, you could use a press, you know, like a cold press or whatever. There's you know lots of modern ways that we use that simple idea of just squeezing the oil out of something. Um, you could also soak it in some kind of solvent and extract the oil that way. Modern science-based medicine does not use essential oils for anything other than a nice rubdown. That's it. There's no clinical proof they cure anything. Historically, people used to use essential oils to cure all sorts of things, sure, right? But that doesn't mean anything because lots of people used to do a lot of stupid things in the past that today we've, we've um, you know, Showing the light of science on it, and we find that there's no real benefit or um, any any real effect happening. They were being prescribed and used back in the, the the day for minor ailments, all the way to cancer. Again, this is a typical thing we hear from many pseudoscientific practices, right? It, isn't it amazing that essential oil, uh, essential oils, you know, acai berry juice, chiropractic, homeopathy, vitamin C are all cure alls, you know, that conveniently deliver that are delivered to us by nature that can cure anything. Well, you know, how about this? None of them are cure-alls. There's no such thing as a cure, cure-all. Unfortunately, there's no panaceas and essential oil is absolutely not a cure for anything other than the need to digest a plant-based fat. 
you may have heard aromatherapy and aromatherapy uses essential oils to treat everything, like I said, from diseases to anxiety to mood improvement and, you know, a lot of things about cognitive function, which is interesting. It's believed that essential oils help the body to find a natural way to cure itself and improve immune response. This is something that sounds familiar to many of us because naturopathic medicine uses that statement as its mantra, and we want to help the body heal itself, you know, and all that. It's all yeah. just a bunch, bunch of BS. It's just a way of avoiding the FDA, right? You're, you can't say that it's treating a disease, so you say it's just supporting the body's ability to heal itself. So it's just making the claims that legally you can make, not because they there's any evidence to back them up. Yeah, now, it could be possible that certain smells have a mood-altering effect on certain people. I personally like the smell of uh, meatballs, and, there's, <laughs> and, it has, and it has a calming effect. It's not where effect. I thought that was going. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but think about it. Like, I do legitimately have quite a bit of smells that I really like. I love the smell of lemons and oranges and citrus fruit. Yeah. is, is mm-hmm. one of those things that I love. So um, I actually bought some essential oils last year. So we we were at Psycon, one of the the uh, other vendors uh, by the SGU table was this was this nice couple who used to sell essential oils for pseudoscience, and then became skeptics, and they had this huge inventory of essential oils, and that they no longer believed in. So they were selling them as culinary oils. So I bought a couple of them, like I got orange. And you could literally put like one or two drops of orange like on your chicken dish at the end and you get orange chicken. Yeah. So it actually works. Or I, I no. actually tried putting a couple drops in like a bottle of Coke and you get orange Coke. Of course. Good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're, 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 you have the true um, – you have particles from that fruit or vegetable, whatever it is, you know, the plant that yeah. – uh, and there you can cook with it and everything. But like I said before, I mean, these oils can be really potent. There's a, there's a quite a bit – They're very of, concentrated, yeah. You know, there's real safety concerns when you use essential oils. If you're using an undiluted version of it, like a highly concentrated oil, you can have a, a really bad reaction to it. Like there's something called phototoxicity. And this is this means that the oil sinks into your skin and when light hits it, a chemical reaction happens and it can actually burn you or it could, it could be dangerous. And other oils can cause allergies and rashes and all sorts of stuff. Now, we're putting these chemicals in the hands of people that are not Doctors are not trained. They're nothing. They're just people that pick up, you know, this as a hobby and then they become aromatherapists. And next thing you know, they're prescribing this crap to people. So come on, you know, get your, get your family members to, uh, to read up on this and look at the history of it and, you know, look at the facts that there's no clinical studies being done or that, ha- that are successfully showing that this stuff has an effect. Well, so there's two basic tactics that the aromatherapists use to make their claims. One is they make vague claims such as it cleanses the air of negative energies, keeps, huh. keeps the nerves in balance. Right? So those are the non-claims, right? Just vague platitudes. You know, It rebalances the blah, blah, blah. Restores harmony and balance between the mind and body. These are just nonsensical non-claims. The other tactic they'll do is they'll, they, they will mix variables. In other words, you know, it's the, this is the part of this complete breakfast approach. Remember those commercials? Oh, like yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Part of this nutritious breakfast. It's the an, Pop-Tarts next yeah. to an omelet. And yeah. Eggs exactly. and milk. Yeah. It's completely useless, you know, a non-essential part of this complete breakfast. So they do that. So here's like <laughs> for um, – this is like from a Skeptical Inquirer actually article about it where they they were quoting various aromatherapy sources. And in and, and one, they quoted them as saying that, that the essence of jasmine 
if you rub it into your abdomen and groin, stimulates sexuality. Well, <laughs> yeah, keep, there you keep have rubbing, it. Must, yeah. it has there was to be a the Saturday Night Live commercial uh, Steve Martin did on that. It was a penis lengthening lotion. Yeah, <laughs> right. You need to rub it on. <laughs> yeah. So if your mother ate too many chicken wings. Yeah, this yeah. episode clearly has a theme. Yeah. So we have a new sponsor this week, Squarespace.com. Uh, and Jay, I know you've used them quite extensively. Yeah, we use them to create the Nexus.com website. That's our annual conference. They just updated their interface to version 6, and it's an incredible tool. They have over 20 templates, and they're all responsive to design, which means that they smartly change their, their size and layout to fit on any device, which is awesome. Squarespace has also won a lot of awards because of the quality of their designs from FWA, the Webbies, and Forbes. They also have 24-7 support, which of course comes in handy. Their hosting starts at $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Yeah, so if you are building a website, go to squarespace.com and check it out. You can start a trial with no credit card required. And if you sign up using our uh, our promotional code SGU9, SGU the number 9, you get 10% off. And of course, you throw some of your support for the SGU. And if you are a listener who is already using Squarespace for your website, send us the URL. We'll take a look at them and maybe we'll talk about it on a future ad. Yeah, and we'd like to thank Squarespace for their support. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Ugh. I've been very theme happy recently. <laughs> yeah. This one, the I've theme very is... theme sad. Theme is dubious research. These are all statistics about how bad scientific research is. Okay, research about doobies. Gotcha. Okay, here they are. <laughs> Item number one, a thorough review of published studies in psychology found that only 5% of published replications confirm the prior results. Item number two, studies have found that as many as 50% of published peer-reviewed research contains statistical errors, sometimes changing the conclusions of the study. And item number three, in surveys, 34% of researchers admitted to questionable research practices themselves and up to 72% in their colleagues. Rebecca, since you weren't with us last week, you get to go first this week. This is tough. <laughs> these, I 100% believe all of these. It's a good place. To so start. only 5% of published psychology replications confirm the prior results. Obviously, that's a very low number, but it's psychology. <laughs> um, that makes sense to me. I mean, we see that all the time. For every single study that comes out, we can come up with another study that says the opposite. And so it doesn't surprise me that an exact replication could find different results. So 50% peer-reviewed research contains statistical errors, which sometimes change the conclusions. That... Sounds perfectly reasonable too. Like 50% actually sounds a little low to me, uh, in terms of just overall statistical errors. If it were 50% that changed the conclusions of the study, I would find that ridiculous. But 50% containing a statistical error, 
One or more statistical error? Yeah, definitely. 34% of researchers admitting to questionable practices themselves, 72% of their colleagues. Now, I've, I actually have read surveys that seem to support this. The 34% admission of their own, uh, questionable practices seems high. All I remember about the prior research I've read is that the total number of people admitting to questionable research was very low, but when asked if you know somebody who has done it, it's very high. So this conforms to that. So that makes sense too. This is a complete and utter coin flip for me. Um, I think I'm going to go with the 50% containing statistical errors because Maybe that's actually a low number. Maybe it's even more that contain errors, but I really have no idea. So total guess. That's the one I'm going with. All right, Bob. Five percent uh, confirmed prior results. Yeah, it seems initial seems initially kind of low out of the right out of the gate, but five um, percent. But yeah, cause we're just always seeing you know studies that uh, go against other studies. So that's I mean yeah, I could, I could support that one. Uh, the 50% um, published peer review um, statistical errors. This is just too vague to really evaluate. What kind of statistical errors are you talking about in terms of 50%? Uh, they, you know, I'm sure they 50% can have minor ones, absolutely. And then you say sometimes changing the conclusions of the result. Well, what the hell does that mean? That could be 1%. Five, that could be 5%. What, is, what does sometimes mean? So this is vague. I, I might have made a statistical error in that one. Yeah, right. So, uh, there's so a that's 50 50 just, chance. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's, a, 50, 50 it's just chance. so vague <laughs> that, um, that's immediately suspect. The, the third one here with the 34% admitting questionable research, I don't know, just human psychology. I, I don't think a third, more than a third of the scientists would admit, uh, to questionable research practices. The 72% in their colleagues, yeah, I could kind of see that. But a third of them, one in three of them saying that, yeah, maybe some of the stuff I do is a little sketchy. I got a problem with that one because of that, just for pure psychology where people can rationalize it, you know, anything they do. Yeah, I want to go with human psychology and say that uh, they wouldn't admit that that they w- had questionable practices. So I'll go with three, with the 34% researchers. Okay, Evan. Crap. <laughs> Only 5% of published replications confirm the prior results. Um, surprisingly low. And then moving on. The next one, about the 50% of published peer-reviewed research contains statistical errors, yes, and sometimes changing the conclusion. Uh, I'm leaning towards that one being correct as well for many of the reasons Bob stated. We don't know what sometimes means in this context. Could be anything. So I'll, uh, I'm leaning towards that one being right, which leaves the 34% of researchers admitting to questionable research practices themselves. I'm leaning towards what Bob is thinking here. 34%, too high, human egos getting in the way of that, flawed thinking does get in the way, and their emotions do too, so therefore the 34% of researchers' questionable research practices is the fiction. And Jay. Okay, so 50% of us have selected the third item, and right now 25% Correct. of us have selected the second item, and 0% of us have selected the first item. So I think statistically I should not choose the first item because nobody else picked it. So that one's off the table. 
Are so you now trying I'm picking, to use science to solve this? Yes, I am. Follow me on this one. Now, okay. now, right. now, Rebecca, seriously, truly follow me on my line of reasoning here. Oh, okay. I always in, try. In the, in the third news item, there are two percentage numbers in there, 34% and 72%. The first thing that occurred to me was those numbers sound so wonky to me. Like, really? Like, I don't know. They just seem fake to me. But then I thought, there's two numbers in this one. What are it doesn't seem like Steve would pick a news item and alter like two of the numbers in the news item because that's just that's just cheesy. So I don't think he would have altered the third one. So I think it's most likely that the second one is the fake. Right. Okay, so I'm Jay monkey. and Rebecca think that uh, the fifty percent makes statistical errors is the fiction, and Evan and Bob think that thirty four percent admitting questionable research practices is the fiction. So you all agree that a thorough review of published studies in psychology found that only 5% of published replications confirm the prior results. You all think that one is science, and that one makes two weeks in a row that I have swept you because that's the fiction. Oh, oh that is wow. amazing. That, oh, I did not expect that. That's awesome. So, well done. Okay, so what? Oh, I think damn. it sucks. My reasoning, my reasoning was an epic fail tonight. Damn. Yeah, yeah. Oh, these are tough. I mean, you know, wow. I think Rebecca's right there. Also, I made them all sound plausible. Unfortunately, Steve, plausible. Steve, yeah. I got to tell you something. So, about two months ago, our brother Joe, who listens to the show, said to me, he called me and Bob and said, "I figured Steve out. He's got to tell when he reads the news items." He has a little bit of a giggle when he's reading the fake. <laughs> yeah. Or and what? or he has a reaction when people get it wrong. He you, you you have a little bounce in your voice when somebody get when somebody guesses wrong. And I've been paying exquisite attention to you and you do not have a tell. No, I don't. It's bullshit. People have been yeah. telling me that for years and it's always something different. It's all confirmation bias. Once you think somebody has a tell, then of course you you see the tell. It's like it always works except when it doesn't. You know, just, yeah, confirmation <laughs> bias makes it seem as if it's real. But I am so conscious not to do anything and, not, you know what I mean, to say things exactly the same way. You know, and also, you know, just talking just in general, like if you talk mm-hmm. to um, poker players or whatever, the whole notion about people having tells is generally BS. But anyway. <laughs> We're going to get a lot of emails about that. I can yeah, tell. Probably, yeah. probably, can but. Tell. So this was inspired by a uh, an infographic created by clinicalpsychology.net, but then I sort of vetted my own items. But they, they were talking about um, shady scientific research is rampant. But let me go over these uh, individually. A thorough review of published studies in psychology found that only 5% of published replications confirmed the prior results. That's the fiction. The truth is... So this, this, this was based upon a study looking at that revealed, this was published in November of 2012, finding that the rate of replications in psychology research is low. The number of studies that get published that are replications, it was only 1.6% of psychology studies, uh, they found used the term replication. Only about half of those were actual replications. So only about 1% of, and they reviewed studies for the last hundred years of psychology studies that were published were actually replications. And and the authors were making the point that that's way, way too low, that we need to be doing and publishing more replications because that's the only way we know if a, if a finding is actually reliable or not. Uh, so 1%, way too low. But of those replications, they found that the vast majority confirmed prior results. But interestingly, they divided it into 
replications that included an author from the original study versus completely independent replications that included no authors. Of replications that included an author who did the original study, 92% confirmed the prior results. Of those that were independent replications, only 65% confirmed the prior results. Very suspicious. Um, I made up the 5% figure. I had to make it low enough to, to be clearly wrong, but still kind of sound plausible. Let's go on. Number two, studies have found that as many as 50% of published peer-reviewed research contains statistical errors, sometimes changing the inclusions of the study. That one is science. Um, so there's a number of different studies looking at statistical errors in published research, and it depends on what kind of statistical errors you're talking about. The high At the high end was 50%, which is why I said as many as 50%. The study that came up with that figure was one I think we actually talked about on the show a couple of years ago. From 2011, the study uh, looked at neuroscience papers, and they found that about, about half, about 50%, made a specific kind of statistical error. And this is what it is. When comparing two groups um, to like the change in two groups, if the treatment group had a change from baseline that was statistically significant and the control group had a change from baseline that was not statistically significant, the authors concluded that the treatment was effective, but that's not valid. You have to compare the change in the treatment group to the change in the control group, and that comparison has to be statistically significant. Hmm. So that, that is a statistic. Oh, it's, it's an error in statistically in analyzing the data, and half of the papers they looked at in neuroscience made that specific mistake. But there's lots of other studies also looking at the same question. Um, another review of published studies found that the uh, the number depends on what kind of literature you're looking at. So they found, you know, there, there were studies that found between 11 and 37%, depending on, again, the, the type of uh, papers that they were looking at, uh, had statistical errors. But only 4% of those would have changed the conclusion. That's still a lot. You know, of studies, when you talk about, you know, a paper that makes like a math error that changes it from a positive, a negative study to a positive study. You know, that's, that's still a lot of papers out there, even though it's only 4%. So that, and so some of these, they said, could have been typesetting errors. You know, they're not always, some, some are math errors. Some were probably just copy errors, you know, like a, a zero getting omitted. Um, and some were just, they didn't understand the statistics. They did it wrong. Okay, let's go on to the third one. In surveys, 34% of researchers admitted to questionable research practices themselves and up to 72% in their colleagues. That one, of course, is also science. Yeah, there's a number of, of surveys. Uh, this one, th these numbers come from a systematic review and meta-analysis of these surveys. That was published in PLOS One. And what they found in two, uh, published in PLOS One in 2009. And yeah, they found that 33.7% uh, of scientists who were questions admitted to questionable research practices, which could include things like uh, excluding data because there was something wrong with it or deciding on which variables to compare sort of as they went along. Um, the kind of things that researchers have figured out can you can use to manufacture positive results. These are the things that you're not supposed to do. Guess what percent of them percentage of scientists admitted to actually outright fabricating data 10% 10% no, 2% okay that's oh. what, that's the percentage of those who admitted it no that's percentage of scientists fabricating yeah was 2 it was this anonymous how anonymous was this it would have to be my gosh yeah yeah it was that's, that well yeah. that's important 
But then they, they said, when asked, they said, yeah, they, they knew of a colleague who had uh, engaged in questionable research practices 72% of the time. So that, that number is hard to assign meaning to that because uh, think about it, like 10 people could all know the same colleague who engaged in questionable practices. And, and so they would all say, yeah, that they know somebody, but it's the same one guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, so, yeah, yeah. yeah it doesn't mean that 72% of scientists engage in questionable practices. 72% of people say they know somebody who did, but that, that's consistent with, in fact, 33% admitting to it themselves. So obviously, these surveys have limitations. They're relying upon, you know, honest feedback, could underestimate it. You know, I think, you know, a lot of these scientists, I think a lot of them think of it as, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're cutting some corners, but it's, it's benign, doesn't, it's not going to change anything. But it's naive. That's naive to think that these kind of corners that they're cutting absolutely can change the end results. We, we, we talked about, about the Simmons article, you know, where he manufactured positive results to a 0.05 p-value 60% of the time simply by cutting these very corners, deciding when to stop collecting data, deciding what statistical analysis to use after the fact, making multiple comparisons, and then deciding which ones look good. That that kind of shady behavior, you can 60% of the time, you could manufacture positive results out of dead negative data with, with just by those researcher degrees of freedom. That's what they're talking about. So it's common. It actually generates false positive results, you know, or, or bad results, even without outright fraud, just cutting a little corners. The recommendations are, you know, to education of scientists to make sure they understand that you can't do these things. These things are not benign. They do affect the outcome. And also holding journal editors more responsible, improving the peer review process so that these kind of things are looked for and papers aren't published if they have making these kinds of serious errors. Further, it should be absolutely standard to for researchers to disclose all of their raw data to the journal that's doing the peer reviewing, period. You, you should just be required outright to submit all your raw data. Right. Yeah. When, once you've had the opportunity to select the data that you're presenting, you then again, you could easily cook the data and, and manufacture whatever results you want. And there would be no way for the reviewers to know it because they only know what they're being given. You would think the cranks and the quacks would jump all over these kinds of reports and throw them back. They do. They do, Evan. They do. Absolutely. The the science deniers love this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And look, even when people are trying to conduct legitimate science, it's hard. Yeah. Science is hard work. And you expect a little bit of crap to get in, you know. But I do think that we should always be pushing for higher, higher standards for understanding how science works, understanding where it goes wrong, understanding where the threshold is. What does it take before we could say, yes, this is scientifically proven? It's not one small study that's never been replicated. That's not the threshold. And this is why all of these things that we're talking about, it's a consistent pattern among many researchers independently replicating the data where – these variables are all properly controlled for, and the methodology is tight. All right. Well, thanks, guys. This was a fun one this week. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Thank Steve. You, Steve. I have a quote if you want. want yeah, Jay, hit me. <laughs> hit me with the quote. A listener named Thomas Caddick sent me in this quote uh, over a month ago, but I just want to let you guys know I save every, all the quotes and I mine them and I try to make um, I try to pick a quote that's relevant to the show if it's even possible. And I happened to stumble on this awesome quote that Thomas sent in that has to do a lot with what we were just talking about. And the quote is, "Science is the only thing that disproves science, and it does it all the time." 
And that is a quote by Matt Delahunty, who was on the Atheist Experience podcast. All right. Hey, don't forget, you could become a supporting member, a premium member of the SGU. At the damn dirty ape level, you get access to premium content, which is extra content we're generating every week. In addition, you get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. Right now, these are available on the SGU website, but uh, we are working on an app that will also give you access to them. And we're exploring other methods as well. We want to make sure that you can access the content that you're paying for. So check out the website. Check out our new member levels. Uh, We really appreciate any support that you can give us. Thank you all for joining me this week. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Doctor. Anytime, Steve, once a week. Crazy bastard. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU, or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you. 